0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. Wonderful, as always. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Colossians chapter 2. If you do not have your Bible, um, it will be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 8. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're continuing on in Colossians, and Paul and Timothy are trying to convey a very strong point early on in the letter. And they tried to make it throughout all of chapter 1, and they're making it even now in chapter 2, which is that Christ is sufficient. Um... There tends to be times back then, and even today, when we can get away from this concept of Christ being enough. That Christ, we need something more than Christ in order to survive, or we need something more than Christ in order to have our foundation in life. And Paul and Timothy are saying, that's not the case. We don't need these other things. All we need is Christ. Um, And so let's continue on. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now that they have laid down the foundation, Paul and Timothy can focus on issues that may arise within Colossae. So it is, they say, see to it. This expression is a way of saying, make sure that. Um, Now what are they to make sure of? that they are not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We want to be careful what we read here. Some could believe that Paul is saying, stay away from philosophy in general. But the problem is, during Paul's time, philosophy had a much broader range of meaning than it does today. Uh, For in that time, philosophy could mean ideas, it meant religions, um, and the like. As such, Paul isn't saying no to philosophy in the most basic of senses. Otherwise, his own writings would fall into that category. Instead, he is warning against a type of philosophy, which is bound with empty deceit, that is, one which is not full. The critique against such philosophy continues, according to the human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. The first, according to, uh, according to, is reminiscent of Jesus' critique against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they focused more on the traditions that they had rather than the law itself. Paul may be fighting against what we know as Judaizers at this point, but we aren't exactly sure of the case, if this is the case. Now, when it comes to elemental spirits of the world, um, there's a bit of debate as to what this means The word which the US ESV translates as elemental spirits is stokwene, or stokwene, and this means, in its basic sense, elements. As to what the elements are is hotly debated. Generally, during the time, it meant simply the base elements of the world, the most basic sense of it, so fire, wind, water, and earth. It could also mean elements in regards to teachings. And then the final way of understanding it is the way that the ESV kind of pushes a bit, which is elemental spirits. So the spiritual beings who rule the world. Now the problem with the final way of looking at it, however, is that that term for elements in that way was never used before the 3rd century um, to describe such beings. But before we deny the reality of the spiritual realm... We know that the ancients during the time and period and before held creation in high regards and even considered them in regards to deity. Simply put, they had a spiritual worldview in which the natural was very much active in. As such, for Paul to use this term here is likely a combination of the basic elements um, and then a reality of what that meant for people who worshipped such elements as God's. It seems likely, then, Paul's warning them against doing this, warns them against their own traditions of idolatry, which would cause them to uh, be taken captive. Now, why should they refrain? Because it is not according to Christ. The philosophy of such individuals, the ideas and views, they're foreign to that of Jesus. And therefore, they are not sufficient grounds... To build upon for their lives. Now, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It can almost play on what was previously said on the emptiness of the vain philosophy and the human tradition. Uh, Christ, he possesses the fullness of deity. This reflects on the Christological hymn in the first chapter. Where Christ is the visible image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of God dwells. So it is in Christ we're able to find that fullness of God. But, but what does that lead to? Well, verse 10 And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We now come to another element of the Christ hymn from the previous chapter. Christ, as it was said, is the head of the body which is the church. Thus, it plays on the logic that if we are the body of Christ, then we have been filled in him. This filling is far greater than the ideas and false assumptions which permeate societies via their philosophical beliefs. For Christ is beyond such philosophies. He is the head not only of the church, but the head of all rule and authority, Rule and authority here reflects those spiritual beings, as it did in the previous chapter. As such, whether good or ill, whether angels or demons, Christ is above and beyond them all, in his supremacy and in his preeminence. Thus, to be part of Christ, to be filled in him, is is a reminder that these beings, despite their power, are unable to fulfill All that Christ fills within us. Now, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, the second in him in these verses deals with circumcision. And there's a lot of debate as to why Paul and Timothy bring up circumcision at this point. Um, It is possible that they are dealing with Judaizers again who are trying to argue that they should be circumcised in order to be true Christians. It is possible, but it also seems unlikely. In Galatians, it was clear that this was the issue as Paul dealt with those who were teaching such a position, Um, and he critiqued it vehemently, if you guys remember what we talked about in Galatians. Here, however, there is no negative statement about circumcision as there is in Galatians. So it is best not to speculate too greatly. Instead, we can only focus on what is said. Thus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Um, Circumcision was a command by God for the Jewish people in order for them to be a physical representation of, of the covenant he made with them. As such, circumcision in this instance refers to the same thing. Instead, however, of the circumcision of the flesh, which indicated such a covenant, it is the circumcision without hands. This then helps us understand the second half of the verse. By putting off the body of the flesh seems to represent sin, uh, the lives of sin in which we once lived in. Yet by the circumcision of Christ we have been brought into the covenant of God. Now we want to be careful, of course, to not assume that the body itself is the problem or the physical is a problem, but instead it is the physical under sinful influences. Now if the previous verse focused on the new life in Christ here and now through this uh, taking off of the sinful nature, or at least having sin no longer be the head of us as as king and ruler, then the next verse focuses on his death, which is our death and his resurrection, which becomes our resurrection. Being buried with him in baptism represents the symbolism of the sacred rite of baptism. Just as we go down into the water, so Christ went down into the earth. Thus, the baptism analogy reminds us of the death of Christ, and our death in him as well. But we also know the story is not done with just the death of Christ, but also his resurrection. Thus, as we are drawn down into the baptism of death, we are also raised up in life. Um, Yet we want to be careful again. While baptism is significant and holds very deep spiritual undertones, it means little without faith. So it is, as in baptism, when we go under as Christ did and when we are raised just as Christ was raised, so it is with our faith, which is the powerful working of God in us, as the text says. We are raised in Christ by our faith. If we go down into death in Christ, then we will be raised with Christ as well. Why? Because God raised Christ from the dead. If God raised up Christ, then all those who are in Christ will also be raised. Faith, then, is the main catalyst. For it is by faith That the power of God works within us and will even raise us from the dead. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. I'm just going to throw these. Um, Having having forgiven us of of all of our trespasses. Paul now focuses first on you, which implies Gentile believers. We can conclude this, um, that that's who Paul is talking about, since he focuses on them being dead in the trespasses and their uncircumcision of the flesh. In this way, it reminds all Gentile believers that being uncircumcised meant, and at one point they were not near to God as the Jewish people were. Not only this, but they were also dead in their trespasses, which likely represents the law in two ways. The first is the Mosaic law, which they didn't have, but also the law of nature as described in Romans 1, in which they kept on breaking all the time. Despite this being their situation, and technically your situation and my situation, God made them alive together in him. In other words, the Gentiles were placed in the tree of Abraham through faith in Christ. By Christ they have been given life, though they were once dead in their trespasses against God. Ultimately, not only the Gentiles, but also the Jewish believers have been gi- forgiven all of their trespasses. And we see this as Paul changes the terminology from and you at the beginning of the verse to forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice, too, that it is all implying a complete and total forgiveness of sin. Now, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. (coughs) Sorry. In what way have our trespasses been forgiven? Paul and Timothy specifically focus on on the canceling of the record of debt. There is some debate as to what this means. Most understand it to mean an IOU that we have, an IOU to God, which we never satisfied. Some others understand it to regard the law. Others in the early church recognized the record as what Adam gave to the devil, which we now owe a debt to. Others still think it represents what we find in a kind of book in which all the records of our human activities are written. Ultimately, the record of debt may be some of these as a mixture, um, though it may simply be a recognition that we as humans should simply follow God and have claimed to do so, but we never have. And as such, it stands against us. The legal demands represent the law, the Mosaic law, If the record of debt represents the human activity, then the law represents the legal demands that we were meant to accomplish but haven't, or even further, when it comes to the natural order again in Romans 1. In either case, the law which God has revealed to us either through special revelation in the word or general revelation in the world, um, we haven't followed. As such, we are in debt to God because of our failure to follow. And the record of debt stands against us because of it. How can this debt be repaid? Ultimately, God set it aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, our debt was a vast debt. But instead of causing us to pay for it, he has taken it away through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. In this way, the debt is no longer on our heads, while at the same time, the legal demands are are met. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul and Timothy now show the supremacy of God over the powers of the world. For God disarmed the rulers and the authorities. The rulers and authorities, again, represent the spiritual forces of evil which permeate the world. Though they have had power, God has stripped them of their power through Jesus. Not only has God stripped them of their power through Jesus, but he has also put them to shame, triumphing over them in him. This kind of terminology is reminiscent of the Roman practice of generals who would defeat another army. They would take the prisoners and they would walk, um, have them walk bound behind them through the cities through much celebration. As such, God has accomplished this through Christ. Christ is placed higher than those powers of darkness and are stripped of their power by Christ. The main point of these verses are to further ground the Colossian believers. Despite the rhetoric around them, which might sound philosophical and somewhat familiar to their normal traditions, Paul reminds them of the power of Jesus. It is through their faith in Christ alone that they have been redeemed, that the debt has been paid, and that they are made even alive. As such, they are not in need of following these elemental beliefs, whether natural or spiritual, because in Christ they have one who is preeminent above them all. Alrighty. Application points. (coughs) Let's do this. I wasn't sure what to name this point. Um, Regardless, I went with elementals. And I thought it would be wise for us to discuss what Paul and Timothy first brought to our attention, which is to not be taken captive by this particular philosophy, which is bound to traditional and um, elemental realm. And then later how Paul discusses how Christ has disarmed the spiritual beings. As it is, we know that the ancient worldviews were spiritual. We see it in the mythologies we read from the ancients. We see how they worshiped their different gods and goddesses in hopes of receiving physical blessing from these supernatural beings. Whether it was copulating for the sake of fertility or sacrificing for safety and travel or giving for some of the same reasons. They were a dime a dozen during the time. And it was because they held to this spiritual worldview that there were spirits, and some of them, particularly gods and goddesses, were powerful, that they worshipped them in such ways. Thus, for Paul, it was not a matter of debating whether or not God existed. During that time... They're very excited out there. (laughs) During that time, very few individuals believed that God did not exist. The problem for Paul was showing them the true nature of the true God against these other false gods and goddesses. He had to show them that their own philosophies, their own religions, were in the end futile and very empty, unable to fill. Yet Paul, at the same time, does not say that they do not exist. As we notice at the end of the argument, Paul says that Christ has defeated them, disarmed them, and stripped them of their power. In other words, Paul doesn't recognize that these beings do exist, that they uh, are against Christ, and that they are warring against the truth. We see this in a way that God has made them a public spectacle in shame, triumphing over them. So the question is, what can we get from this? Well, there are a number of things. The first is the reality that such beings do exist. The simple truth is that there are malevolent evil beings who are opposed to the truth of the gospel and are at war with God. As such, these beings are at war with us if we are in Christ. They are at war with us in many different ways, whether directly or indirectly. But there is little we can speculate about that here and now. I'm not going to get into the spiritual warfare aspect right now. For that would be going against what Paul describes in the text. Instead, what we notice is how the elementals, or the elements, are foundational when it comes to the philosophy which the pagans would hold to. As such, we recognize that these rulers and authorities were if not thee, then part of the foundation of their empty beliefs. In some ways, we can all see the emptiness of such deception. We know that sacrificing to idols certainly will do no good for us here on earth and how meaningless such sacrifices are. Yet despite the obvious critique, which can be brought forth, people believed it. Thus, while it may be easy to cast all the blame of false beliefs on these beings of darkness and their power to deceive, the simple reality is that we are far too easily led astray by deceit. As Mike likes to say in Sunday school, we are called sheep, and we are called sheep for a reason. (laughs) They're not the smartest of animals. Because when we think about it, Even if we look back over the ages to those who worshipped in such ways, sacrificing to idols made of wood and stone, can we really say that we're very different today? Do we not in our own society seek to pay homage to other forms of darkness, whether we call them um, gods or goddesses or not? Do we not also seek to gratification of the flesh? Do we not also follow after beliefs which are deceitful and truly empty? We do not have to look far. If we look around our own society, we will find that it is all too familiar to what we're seeing in today's text. For example, the philosophical underpinnings of the sexual revolution in the United States during the 60s with Kinsey and the like. Have had a great effect on society since then. Now it is socially acceptable to have whatever sexual relation you want. Thus, the tradition of those from the 60s were have freedom in your sexuality, and now we see what the cost of freedom is. It isn't only in sexuality, however, we also see it in regards to other elemental slogans found in our society. This supposedly great American dream, which is promised to us each, um, one which our congregations are so easily wrapped up in that we would be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What are we willing to do in order to gain health and wealth? Well, depending upon your definition of health, it could be a number of different things. It could mean simply beauty and those who will destroy their bodies in order to keep them beautiful. Beautiful. Or it could be those who think fitting into that dress or those jeans. Or maybe it is not getting sick at all. Or maybe even healthy in regards to sexuality and the like. What would we do for these things as a society? I suspect many of us would willingly poison ourselves to get it. What about wealth? What would our society be willing to do to get wealthy? Well, we know that many in our society sell lots of things. Hugh Hefner, he died this last week. He sold sex. There are many within our community who would know the pangs of selling pills. Maybe not in our particular community, but the selling of weapons. And thus the need for continuous warfare around the globe. Money by way of destruction is all of these things. We see it in our society. What will we do for these philosophical traditions is staggering. Consider the family. How many fathers have left their families because they all of a sudden feel a call of peace from somewhere else, some newfound religious experience which calls them away? Likewise, how many mothers have done the same? People fleeing from these things, following these understandings, these basic elements of the world, these demonic ideas filled with deceit, filled with darkness. We could spend time only looking at the broader society and its ills, but that would be hypocritical, would it not? How many of our own congregations have fallen sway to the ideas and philosophies foreign to Christ? We've already mentioned a few just these last several weeks. The ideas of growth being found in numbers, the idea of using worldly methods to reach a worldly society, using methods outside of Christ as though the power of Christ is not enough to transform this entire town, this entire nation, this entire world. Or the prosperity gospel change the gospel to make it easier to swallow. Take out sin, take out death, take out wrath, take out our fallen nature and our need for Christ. Instead, put it in there that God wants you to live your best life now. That the whole focus of this life, God wants to bless you and give you everything you ever dreamed of. You think Santa Claus is good? He's nothing compared to this God. My dear friends, so many ways we are sheep in so many ways we are so easily swayed by the powers of darkness to be honest they don't even have to try very hard to get us to follow them all it takes is a simple twist a simple turn a simple argument to cause us to turn our backs on our sovereign our God and follow after these elemental powers of the world that is the greatest trick of all For the truth is, while we are very easily swayed, they are very deceptive in their deceit, it's true. They sound very pleasing to our ears. They make perfect sense. If you were to ask me why Paul uses the word philosophy here, it is to remind us that the elemental powers do not always come at us physically, but through our minds. For there are many battles which are being fought, battles of the heart, but also of the mind. And unless we begin to reason better, we will always lose these battles against the darkness. We need a stronger foundation than our enemies. We need a foundation which will allow us to stand firm against the elemental powers which tie so strongly to our human traditions. How can we stand against such foes who seem so all-powerful? Can we stand on our own? I know I cannot against such a force. I know I am not as strong as these forces. How do I know it? Because I have been under their dominion before. I can't look at society and think to myself, how great I am. I look at society and think to myself, I have been there. In the muck and the mire. I have been in the slough of despond. I have been in the darkness, tasted its rotten fruit. I have lived in sin, relished in the mystery of it, in the pain of it. I know what it is like. I know I am not strong enough on my own to overcome it. Because I was part of it and I know its strength. The temptations are there to jump right back in. To follow the crowd. To listen to the philosophy of lesser gods. So what can I do? What can you do? Where can our help come from? If we were left with such questions, we would surely be a blind people. Ultimately, though, we can be thankful for the gospel of Christ. Gospel, that word, it means good news. If the above was all of what was left for us, then this wouldn't be a gospel at all. Thus the gospel has a crux, without which it would cease to be good news and would be only bad news now and for all eternity. Now what is that crux? What is it that the gospel itself is founded that makes it good? The answer is Jesus Christ. For I know myself, I know my sin, I know my darkness, and because of this I am well aware of the darkness around us in our society. I know it because I understand it, because I once lived in it. But that is the difference. Where we were once dead in our trespasses, we have now been made alive through Christ. This is the greatest news which can ever be told. That through Christ we can have life. And that the life he gives starts here and now. For even though I am tempted and weak, Christ is strong. Even though I am so easily led by these false philosophies, and I'm so easily led by deceit, Christ never lets me go. He always rights the ship. He always brings me back to himself. He is the foundation. He is the one on whom we move, breathe, and have our being. It is Jesus. He is the one. It is because of what he has accomplished that we are alive by faith. You know, the darkness, whatever way it manifests itself, is terrible. We can never rejoice in it or over it. Neither can we say in our own right that we are stronger than it. When we consider the demonic, the beings of darkness, we can say, yes, they are powerful, more powerful than we are at least. But that is the thing, even though they are powerful, and even though they may wage war against us, against the chosen of God, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Why is that? Because Christ has conquered them. He has conquered them. They are disarmed before Christ. they cannot stand before him. God has made a mockery of them through the cross of Jesus. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. The foes have already been defeated. The enemy is losing a, is fighting a losing battle. We will be victorious no matter what the papers say, no matter what the darkness says, no matter what the rulers and authorities say, no matter what the world around us says. We will win. Why? Because Christ has conquered and the world, should though it mocks us and jeers at our faith in him, we know that in him there is life and there is truth and there is victory. So it is for those of us who understand this gospel, those of us who have received this Jesus, we have our ultimate hope and thankfulness. For it is in Christ alone that we find our salvation. It gives us hope for anyone. For if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. It also gives us strength, for it is his strength in me which overcomes all the darkness within and without of me. While I stumble, and though I miss a step, I can be sure that I will always have our Savior's loving hand to pick me back up and His strong back to carry me along the way. My hope is that you would understand that He is our foundation. The world says we need other things. It says that we need numbers, we need wealth, we need health, we need passion, we need X, Y, and Z. I'm here to tell you that the world is wrong. Christ is all we need. For our debt, our sin, is nailed to the cross of Christ. What more do we need? For in Christ's life, we learn how to live. What more do we need? For in Christ's death, we die. What more do we need? In Christ's resurrection, we will rise. What more do we need? Nothing. Christ is our foundation. Christ is our hope. Christ is our salvation. Christ is all we need now and forever. Cling to Christ then, now and forever. Give him the glory for all things in this life. Whether you are a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, son, daughter, grandmother, grandfather, whatever your role... Whatever you're calling, let Christ lead. And in him know just how deep his salvation goes and how strong the foundation is in him. Does anyone see the gospel in this passage? (laughs) A part of me was like, I don't even need to do the gospel. It's right there. It's in these verses. It's throughout the whole thing, isn't it? And how wonderful it is. But that's the thing, though. We still need to hear it. We still need to hear it because, guess what? Dark things still happen every week in our society. Dark things still happen every week in our lives. We still stumble, each and every one of us. We still struggle. And that's why it is so necessary for us to come back to this every week to remind us God is there. He's going to lift us back up. I know it because I know this. Um, So as we consider the gospel of Christ, we consider the origins of the universe. We consider the fact that God made everything. Um, What does that mean? That means that God is supreme above it all. (laughs) That means that when we look outside and we consider the vastness of the universe and we think, wow, that's really big and I'm really small, Well, the God who is in you is even bigger than all of it. How awesome is that (laughs) to consider when you really think about it? Um, And it also means that you're special, you're unique, because God tells us that, you know, out of all of these things, the stars, the universe, uh, the created cosmos, the galaxies, you think, man, they're spectacular. You remember, God said that he created you in his image. That makes you far more significant than even the greatest of galaxies because it's in you that the image of God dwells, the image of the image of God, if you will. How awesome to consider. And that means that you have worth, you have sanctity to your life. Um, and it's important to remember these things about yourself, that God has done this for you and that you are in this way. You yourself are creating the image of God. But of course, we still have to go on with the story, and that's the fall. Um, the simple truth is is that, you know what there's something wrong with humanity. This last week, we saw two events which are atrocious in humanity. Um, the first one I'll, I did mention it earlier, Hugh Hefner died. You don't think that man had an effect on this society? <laughs> he did. An awful effect on this society a dark effect on this society. The man who sold sex to millions of Americans and who knows who else around the world. You don't think that has an effect? That's rotten to the core. And a lot of people are now rotten to the core because of what he started. But then we also had another event happen and that's what happened in Las Vegas. What kind of darkness in this world would call such a person that much rottenness to cause such more rottenness in other people's lives. We are surrounded by darkness, people. We're surrounded by the result of sin in our lives. We're surrounded and we're being barraged. It's happening all the time. Darkness is a real thing and we see it All the time. And it stems from our sin. It stems from, you know, these elemental forces that we just fall prey to, that we just accept and we bow down to these things and these ideas. How do we overcome these things? How do we overcome watching 50 people get massacred? How do we understand it? We weep for this world. We pray for this world. And we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because as dark as this world is, a light shines in the darkness. And that is Jesus Christ. And that light of Jesus Christ is what keeps us going. His life, death, and resurrection has Begun something so fantastic. It has brought life to us so that when we see the darkness outside, we can say, I have a light and I'm going to shine it, and we each have to. Jesus Christ is the answer to every bad thing that happens in this world. Have you ever even considered that? He's the answer, He's the foundation. And so it's necessary for us who are the body of Christ, who has God dwelling within us, to proclaim it and proclaim it and proclaim it. To live it, to hear it, and to say it over and over again because we will beat the darkness. God has already done it. And all it takes for us is to have faith in Him. Faith in Him. To have faith and live lives worthy of him, as the scriptures teach. And so again, when we see it all, we can say, you know what? Not only is it change our lives here and now, it's changing our lives for the future so that one day, for those who are in Christ, we will be raised from the dead. If we are in Christ, if we die in Christ, we will be raised in Christ because he has been risen and God is faithful. So no matter what, the darkness can't take away our hope. And though we weep, and though we struggle, and though we cry over the things of this world, our hope is intact because of Jesus. The text today it's reminding us Jesus is our foundation. Don't let go of that foundation. He is worthy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us life, that you have forgiven us of all of our debts, of all of our sins, and that we can have an effect on society by your grace. Lord, these are wonderful things. It's wonderful to know that the cross is having an effect 2,000 years later on us. And it's wonderful to know that you have disarmed these elemental powers and that through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, these elemental powers are shown and put to shame. Lord, let us be bold. Let us remember our foundation. And let us always remember what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, which transforms our entire lives to glorify you. May you alone be praised. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.